1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And welcome to our Easter Question Time special. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it's the Easter recess, Easter holidays. The Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative is scattered around the world and the UK, and we are going to have a question time special in our time together. That doesn't mean we're going to be slacking in any way at all. None of this kind of holiday laziness for us a lot. But it will be via the questions, your brilliant questions, that we will together be making sense of a range of different themes. We've got the latest on Keir Starmer, Brexit, uh the media big big themes for us to uh try and make sense of in our time together during this podcast. So first of all I hope you're having a good time you know I, I kind of like the lull that you know I, I'm not a fan of the kind of whole christmas thing and all the rest of it but I I I like the pause at christmas the pause at least of the sense that things are not quite as frenzied as usual. Time for us to do some more baking and running and that kind of thing. Anyway, I hope you're all having a good time. Just a few notices about my never-ending tour. Uh, thanks all of you who came to, uh, yeah, the Witham in Barnard Castle, somewhere else as well, I can't remember. Um, coming up, I think I'm on at the opening night of the uh, Cambridge Book Festival. And that's on uh, Thursday, April the 20th. Then uh, the full live show uh, on April the 24th at the Old Market Theatre in Brighton, a brand new show. So all of you on the south coast, come along. Eve of the May local elections, who knows what will be going on by then, but we will be having to gather together and make uh, sense of it all. It's a great theatre, that the Old Market Theatre, lovely bar. Did a Christmas special there just before well, obviously, just before Christmas. I'm going crazy. I'm meeting one of the cooperative for a swim beforehand, perhaps. Yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure whether that's gonna it's so cold at the moment still. Anyway, there's that one. And then on Monday, May the fifteenth, after the kind of May local elections and the kind of sense of the party conference season moving into view in the general election, May the fifteenth at king's place and then before very long the edinburgh festival the last two weeks and tickets are on sale it's really exciting i was looking at the edinburgh festival and shows are beginning to put tickets on sale including mine Uh, yeah the last two weeks of the edinburgh festival every day and a different show and finally for those of you who kindly subscribe to patreon your latest bonus podcasts in our series on troublemakers should have arrived or will arrive uh, exclusively for all of you who subscribe. It's on uh, troublemaker number four, David Owen. Really interesting, hard to pin down political figure. Um, so yeah, that's for you. And thank you so much, Patreon subscribers, for subscribing. And now, Easter question time. I'm going to begin one uh, on the media because it's a bit of fun and also it's an offer for another role in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Paul Watson says, I'm an accountant so can count the beans while others bake bread and so on. We need an accountant, Paul. We've got our white van man driver. We've got our bakers and all sorts of things, our knitters. So, But financial help or advice, uh, well, advice, I have to add, not help. We're not sort of in the uh, Donald Trump category here or whatever, you know. But, um, yeah, welcome along. Um, and Paul writes, I normally listen to the podcast whilst running and very often near the Houses of Parliament. I used to run around there, some good runs along the river and things like that. I'm emailing to get your thoughts on what the most reliable print media outlets there are. Uh, Paul is looking for a balanced take on news and a range of opinions. Well, good luck with that, uh, Paul, with our newspapers. He says, I've been a Times and Guardian subscriber, yet both are hideously partisan. Uh, The Guardian for a long time, The Times, markedly of late. It's interesting, Paul, I think The Times has been hideously partisan for years, but it disguises it quite cleverly. So the BBC almost thinks it's an impartial source of news and comment, and it is far from. Uh, I remember in the 2015 election, The Times put on its front page as a kind of news story, ed Miliband in the pocket of alex Salmond. it was a sort of tory poster they just put it out there and made it a news story that the tories were launching this as a kind of theme and there we are all the bbc editors reading it oh yeah let's get in three times columnists to debate some uh story at the time um but i think the joy of now paul is that you we we are all our own editors in a way we can select and search and find it's like with podcasts as well There will always be, every day, an interesting Guardian column, an interesting column in the Times. It's worth looking at the Byline Times. They do some very interesting stuff, which is outside the kind of media orthodoxy, which is nearly always wrong. And uh, I think, yeah, just the FT, I look at it every day. You have to subscribe to a lot of these things. But I think um, the subscriptions are still pretty Good value. Um, I know we're used to getting a lot of stuff for free, um, but I like the idea that we can all be in charge of our own range of columns and news sources um, rather than buying one or two newspapers as we used to do in those olden days, which are now long gone. I used to remember getting really excited running down the stairs to get from the doormat. Is that where they used to arrive? Three papers. used to get it every day, Guardian, Independent and Times. And couldn't wait. Now I get excited about podcasts arriving. Anyway, to show how, Paul, uh, this podcast is balanced to some extent. Um, Last week, we were debating... Uh, the lessons of Keir Starmer's decision to bar Jeremy Corbyn from standing as a Labour candidate in uh, his own constituency. Now, to summarise my view, in case you missed it, in which case, where were you? And you can listen back anyway. But my view was that it was a strategic error of Keir Starmer to do so, for reasons which I won't go into now, Um, and also disproportionate as a punishment. Uh, But uh, at the same time, I argued uh, in a way that some of Corbyn's supporters don't, that Starmer and his team and any Labour or indeed Tory leader has every right to be involved in the selection of candidates because they are the ones who will be working with them as potential or actual MPs in the House of Commons and perhaps within a government. Um, Now given that which is huge working they're looking for ministers as well as representatives of a local area Uh, they have every right to be involved. Anyway Uh, had lots of different conflicting responses as you may have uh, predicted so here just a couple Uh, Emma Bernal, I'm writing to disagree with you over Labour and Corbyn I wouldn't have wanted it to end this way for Corbyn or his supporters but the moment the whip was, was withdrawn this ending was inevitable I agree with that actually Emma I think the mistake was to suspend him in the first place, um, but uh, after which it was going to be impossible to do anything than what they have done. Um, uh, when you talk about divided parties, it's re- this is back to Emma, it's really important to remember your favourite word, context. On any divide, there are two sides. In Labour, there are sort of three, really. Two very noisy extremes and a majority of members somewhere in the middle. In withdrawing the whip, Starmer may have picked a side, but if he had gone back on that, the noisy crew on the other side would have felt just as betrayed by Corbyn's supporters. So, um, yeah, no, it's it it, it it you know when you do these kind of things like suspend a former leader, who sort of represents something. Uh, in this case the so-called although it's a complete misnomer hard left you know, I've never known such a soft political force of giving up all power when they had seized it so accidentally uh, in 2015 there was going to be no way back because of all the symbolism and emotiveness involved um, and I, I agree with you that actually you do have the, at the moment in the modern Labour Party, the sort of the two extremes, the uh, the Corbynista wing, the ardent followers of a kind of mytho- mythologised Tony Blair, uh, some of whom uh, I think work with Keir Starmer in his office, but most are... Uh, Not like that. And um, actually, uh, this is quite interesting. Emma writes, it's my sense that the vast majority of Labour members just want to get on and win a general election. Constituency Labour parties like mine, which once felt like war zones, are now becalmed, or as calmed as any Labour Party group of more than two people ever get. There's a sense of mission among Labour members that this might be the time they finally do it. That hasn't been widely shared since 2015, when we were obviously wrong in our optimism. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You see, this is a great joy of podcasts. You you get to hear from. Uh, the view and perspective of uh, local uh, parties and the current sort of state of morale. And I get the impression at a local level with Labour, there is a real sense of purpose and focus. And in a way, more so to some extent than you can sometimes feel within the kind of more feverish atmosphere of uh, Westminster. There is an absolute focus about how to win and going out there to do it. There's a of you from David Stanley, who, oh um, yeah, he wrote. He got so worked up, David. He wrote to me. He was on holiday in New York and wrote to me about all of this. And he's written again, uh, saying the ban on Jeremy Corbyn was an unnecessary and disproportionate move by Keir Starmer, that will backfire during the election. Starmer has yet to win the enthusiastic support of voters and the Tories and their supporters will highlight the fundamental dishonesty of a politician who, when he was elected, said, I want to pay tribute to Jeremy Corbyn, who led a party through some difficult times, who is a friend as well as a colleague. Those video clips will be repeated continuously, says uh, David. Well, as you know, that's sort of what a part of the strategic argument that i made last week um i think there were subtle ways of managing this that would have in the end been strategically more effective anyway enough of that enough of these internal party uh matters and you know uh uh fascinating and important uh, though they are in in so many uh different ways so we've had that we've had paul looking for balance we got balance on that issue uh paul uh Let's move on now to uh, Peter Sumner, who uh, focuses on the government. Why has Rishi surrounded himself with so many inadequate and incompetent ministers? For this purpose, I'm trying to separate out whether I agree with the policies from issues about whether they show reasonable mastery of their briefs. Don't contradict themselves too often and too visibly, and whether they can handle a few slightly unfriendly media questions without looking foolish. It seems bizarre to take an example, to give Braverman the incredibly challenging and diverse role of Home Secretary when she had no junior ministerial experience at all, except as Attorney General. Is it simply a sense of obligation for past favours, the need to placate particular elements in the Conservative Party, a desire to have weak, pliable, unthreatening cabinet members, or simply bad judgment? Are there comparisons with previous prime ministers? Um, Yeah, no, this is the whole podcast here, Peter, uh, where we contextualise this current uh, cabinet. Uh, I've said before that for Rishi Sunak, The origins of his rise could well contribute to his fall in that he clearly decided he had to offer the likes of Braverman a job in order to get her support in that insane leadership contest which followed the fall of Truss where Johnson threatened to come back and um, take over once more and in order to deal with that threat evidently Sunak offered Braverman a senior post for her backing. That's why she's in. And, um, you know, other prime ministers have been quite constrained by what they could do with their cabinets. Harold Wilson felt a huge pressure to balance the left and right, though he was dealing with far more talented politicians than the current uh, Conservative government um and indeed the previous conservative governments i mean he was dealing with the likes of ben and foot on the left and then jenkins and shirley williams and others on the uh, so-called labor right um but he did feel the need uh, to, to balance the uh, cabinet and there are similar constraints really on a lot of prime ministers but these uh Cabinets that are formed of mediocrities, partly because a prime minister doesn't want to be challenged. That was a Boris Johnson phenomenon, Peter. Uh, thank you uh, very much. Now over to Susan Aykroyd. Uh, Susan said, I've been uh, listening to the podcast while tending to the greenhouse in Yorkshire, where I've started to take down the winter insulation as it's getting too hot in the middle of the day. Ah well, I'm pleased you're getting the heat in Yorkshire, Susan. You know we've had a bit in London, not enough, but it's what a what a hopeful activity. It kind of symbolises uh, the end of winter and lighter days and sunshine. Anyway, Susan adds, if only the Tories felt some heat from Keir Starmer's words. What a beautiful segue as a kind of metaphor from uh, your greenhouse. Is his reticence a ploy to avoid direct confrontation? My main question is how can the general public get better engaged, notwithstanding your podcasts and evenings of live shows, of course, although she points out they're already engaged. Yeah, yeah, but you know, the excitement's still there. Can engage loads more of that, I'm sure. How can public discourse be improved? Is it necessary or will the public react in time for the next general election? I think that uh, one of the arts of leadership in opposition, especially for Labour leaders, obviously is to reassure, which uh, Keir Starmer is obsessed about. Uh, look, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn, uh, You know, to go back to our earlier discussion. Uh, look, the policies have changed. Uh, look, you can trust us with the economy. You can trust, 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 blah, blah, blah. But As you can see, I mean, I I hardly ever watch that awful Question Time programme, but I have watched a few of the clips recently where members of the audience articulate more vividly the uh, terrible state of this country than you do get for Keir Starmer, who doesn't do uh, passion or uh, convey a sense of how dysfunctional this country is or indeed why. Because that's what you need to explore to create the space for a, a sense of real change imminent and looming. Um, and but I think his reticence is not about avoiding direct confrontation. It is. Uh, a, a fear of losing this sense, oh, look at, you know, we are calm, solid, uh, reassuring, uh, you can trust us, don't be frightened of us, Middle England, Red Wall, all the kind of newspapers, all the things that Labour feel besieged by. But that art is twofold reassurance and excitement. Um, you can't do it on competence alone, not least when it looks as if Sunak will be playing the competence card, albeit from a very low starting point with Truss and Johnson. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Andrew Holstead. A few months ago, I joined the subscriber group for your podcast. Where have you been, Andrew? Only a few months? And I've been greatly listening back uh, to previous podcasts. Um, he was wondering about, uh, yeah, I was think you've been quite a bit about... There are many implications in terms of the career of Nigel Lawson. Andrew says, The sad passing of Nigel Lawson prompted a thought. Whether one agrees with his economic and tax policies or not, it's striking how long-lasting many of his changes were. Indeed, as someone who worked as a tax lawyer for a number of years, it's striking how much of our current system of personal taxation took shape during Lawson's tenure... At the Treasury. Roy Jenkins once said that Chancellor's policies were sandcastles, swept away by their successor. But Lawson was arguably an exception to this in the long-term impact of his changes. Are there any lessons from how Lawson conducted his chancellorship that might assist Labour and specifically Rachel Reeves? Yeah, I think this is a really good point. I knew Lawson a bit towards the end of his uh, life, liked him. I found him engaging, curious, uh, open. His memoir, I really recommend you reading it. It is one of the the meatiest um, of any uh, previous chancellor, and he was a long-serving radical chancellor. Indeed, it's great because... When it gets technical, uh, he writes in his memoir, uh, if you don't want to read this bit, go on to page 380. You know, is he, he, He's still a journalist. He knows how to guide the reader. But he was substantial because of this. Um, and I think we, um, as a cooperative, need to reflect more on this. Um, he, first of all, believed in things passionately. I happen to think he was wrong about privatisation, about um, the uh, scale of tax cuts um, and the impact that had on public services, which by the end of his period in the Treasury were in a dire state. Um, But he had values and he built daring, original policies that made sense of those values. And he had, uh, for most of the time, the admiration and support of a prime minister, who was also a figure who had famously strong convictions from which policy emerged. And, um, uh, you know, in, in fairness to Labour, I think Brown will be seen as a big, big chancellor. Uh, who also, of course, became uh, Prime Minister and had to deal with the global crash. But uh, Lawson would not have built a set of policies on the back of a focus group in the Red Wall or a focus group in Stevenage. It was bigger than that. And and politics at the moment feels quite shallow. And Lawson deserves all the write-ups he's getting at the moment because of the bigness of his... Uh, ambition as a reforming chancellor. So you can disagree with it, um, and I think the consequences were uh, uh, pretty calamitous on several different fronts, but also he won the arguments. So even now Labour doesn't dare touch ownership apart vaguely from the railways. And as, as Andrew wrote, the tax, the tax kind of framework of Lawson New Labour felt compelled to adopt as well. And uh, there will be a similar timidity, I suspect, in challenging those, uh, that basic framework from Labour this time. But he's the one. He, the changemaker is the one that's remembered and uh, admired across the political spectrum.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So let's go on, um, yeah, to uh, uh, Jack who says, do you think there is any credence to the suggestion that social conservatism is enjoying something of a popular counter movement across politics? On the right, Lee Anderson has come uh, to support uh, lumpen punitive authoritarianism. don't think that's how Lee would put it. Uh, Meanwhile, on the left, Keir Starmer has pushed getting tough on crime right to the top of the agenda. In the SNP, Kate Forbes' leadership campaign indicated a steep, small-c conservatism. Away from party politics, the gender-critical movement seems to be growing louder, and it's certainly well represented in the traditional press. It appears that illiberalism is an increasingly powerful force and is manifesting itself well beyond its comfort ground on the political right. I'm not sure about that, Jack. There has always been, at any given time, powerful social conservative forces. Even if you look at the 1960s, there were two things going on at the same time. There was uh, within the House of Commons support for Roy Jenkins' liberal, socially liberal reforms across the across the uh, Commons. Uh, it had strong support from quite a lot of conservatives as well, but outside there was noisy protestation until implementation, at which point the noise subsides a bit. So I always think that there has been and will continue to be a debate between social conservatives and social liberals. On the whole, the debates in the end are won by the social liberals. The Jenkins reforms were implemented. They are still in place. They were then uh, developed by others, Blair, Cameron, uh, in later governments. Um, But there will always be this sort of ongoing debate and in the build up to general elections, um, especially this one with this obsessive focus on the Red Wall and a sort of caricature of the Red Wall voter, um, there is bound to be an attempt to highlight social conservatism for Labour as well. Fearing all the tax and spend traps that they can fall into, talking about being, uh, you know, or implying a degree of social conservatism uh, doesn't cost any money. But I think it's actually not a distinct, unique moment, Jack, but it's an interesting uh, observation. Uh, And I hadn't sort of extrapolated as widely as you've done. It's, It's good. Over to Tom Smith. Surely the most sensible position to take on Brexit is that while we voted to leave the EU, no one voted to leave the single market or the customs union, and that it's these actions that have caused untold damage and that we should seek to reverse. Good luck on that one, Tom. It's not going to happen. It's been too unequivocally ruled out by Labour um, and so that is not an option there are other ways that a Labour government would move closer but getting back into that single market which would improve Britain's growth prospects is perversely not even being uh, discussed okay over to Marion Sainsbury Uh, really enjoyed the King's Place show oh thank you Marion Uh, thanks for coming Hope you can make May the 15th a completely different one. Who knows where we will be then? Back to Jeremy Corbyn. I'm only reading because you'd be nice about the King's Place show, Marion, because uh, I think we've done this one. But very quickly, I supported Jeremy Corbyn and joined the Labour Party in 2015. I still think he did a valuable job in highlighting uh, austerity and inequality, but it didn't work. So in 2019, I was happy to support Keir Starmer. I've heard him speak live a couple of times and have been impressed. I think he will be a soft left leader, Prime Minister, And there isn't a convenient model for this, so he constantly gets compared to Corbyn or Blair and found wanting. I think he'll be more cautious than Corbyn, but more left than Blair. And for the moment, I'm willing to trust him to work out how to get there. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, point, uh, Marion, that... uh, You know, this happens to Labour leaders, uh, much more so than Tory ones. They're constantly being compared to predecessors. Who are you? Are you Blair? Are you Brown? I've read columns saying, oh, I thought he was Miliband, but perhaps he's more Blair or maybe... It's mad. Uh, He is uh, what he is and what he is going uh, to be. And I, I think you have identified space... Uh, where he may be allowed to breathe politically as himself. It's partly as media people briefing every time he makes a speech. They all say, oh, he's going to refer to Blair, and this is him becoming Blair-like and all this kind of stuff. Um, he's him, and he's a very interesting, uh, distinct uh, figure. And if he is hard to work out at this point, That can be a weakness, but it can also be a strength. Uh, Being uh, enigmatic at this point can be okay. It just depends on whether you can have a sense of momentum and purpose rather than uh, the imprecision uh, leading towards a sense of being directionless. Um, These are all the arts of leadership that are difficult. David Frost Larkin writes, I'm I'm pleased there's a Larkin in there, David, or else I would have thought you might be Lord Frosty Frost, and I would have had a mini heart attack, Um, although rumour has it that Lord Frosty Frost has listened uh, to us all. So ooh, listening to the April the 4th uh, podcast whilst enjoying a uh, nice glass of red wine. is Was that the one with Danny Blanchflower, David? Um, no, no, no. That would have been the follow-up from Danny Blanchflower. They're coming thick and fast. Just reflecting on Margaret Thatcher saying her father... The grocer never spent more than he earned. Yeah, I was referring to that, you know, this great sort of monetarist homily. Uh, anyway, this is a good point that David makes. Maybe if he had borrowed, uh, in other words, spending more than he earned, he could have expanded his business, employed more people, and made a greater tax contribution. And instead of Sainsbury's all over the UK, would all be shopping at Robert's. Yeah, Alf Roberts, Margaret Thatcher's father, running the UK's supermarkets because he uh, borrowed sensibly and invested. And this is the kind of metaphor, uh, we I talked about it with Danny Blanchflower, that uh, Labour need to raise and deploy Um they haven't got the policies at the moment to, to justify it, but there is a way. She was she, she did it, as we've discussed on this podcast, Thatcher, you know. He never spent more than he earned, and a country can't spend more than it earns. Well, what if a country borrows to invest, and with the investment we get better railways, and the uh, parts of the country level up, and economic growth follows... As David suggests, you get uh, the equivalent of Alf Roberts uh, running UK supermarkets across the uh, country. Yeah, um, um, uh, it's a very good point. Thank you for that. David Thompson from Belsize Park and Birmingham. What a dream combination. Uh, Oh, yeah, came to King's Place. And he says, uh, I was fascinated Uh, by the discussion, and great to spot William Keegan in in attendance. Yeah, William Keegan, the Observer columnist, often uh, uh, comes to the uh, King's Play shows. I wanted to ask whether you could really ever see things, uh, Labour winning an election, unless the situation in Scotland changes, and why isn't Labour focusing more on Scotland? Well, it is now, David, since the uh, resignation of Nicola Sturgeon And all the twists and turns that have followed since then, and uh, now we've heard that um, the police were questioning her husband and so on. On it goes. Well, Keir Starmer is hardly out of Scotland. I'm told he's been there four times in relatively recent weeks. Um, So they dare to wonder, they don't know for sure, but to wonder whether uh, what is happening represents a turning point after the dominance of the uh, SNP. Anyway, thank you, David. Hope to see you at King's Place next time for another completely fresh show. May the fifteenth. Sean Farrell writes: Is there any chance you could backtrack on your comment that Sunak seems like a nice guy? Look at what he's saying about grooming gangs. He's a complete shit. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, is it? Uh, you know, t- to be honest, uh, when I say he's a nice guy, I don't know him. He, he, he's the first prime minister I think I haven't spent sort of time with on my own uh, in different forms. So it it was an impression I formed uh, of seeing him working assiduously with his glasses on at things uh, like to do with that Windsor framework etc. But Sean what your question implies is right. He's trying to pull off a trick which is going to be difficult for him which is to be seen as the assiduous, hard-working, well-intentioned, Uh, solver of problems, and at the same time, an out-and-out bastard on some of these culture war issues. Uh, In other words, finding a different route to rebuild that Brexit coalition from 2019. And it won't be easy, because that was full of contradictions, um, but brought together by um, let's get Brexit done, get it done, put it in the microwave, it's oven ready. Even it's certainly a metaphor that didn't work. If it was oven-ready, you shouldn't need the microwave. But uh, we all know he got away with it then. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Sean. Steve uh, Cotts from the Bellwether constituency of Swindon South. Uh, Long-time fan of the podcast. Oh, thank you. And the Edinburgh Festival show uh, have enjoyed several of them over the years. Thank you. Well, said at the beginning, Steve, uh, the tickets for the next one are on sale. It's moving into view. It will be here very quickly. I've been wondering, he says, in the light of your take on the narrow Sunak flight path to victory, or at least not wholesale defeat, and the recent Dover travel chaos, if this scenario is at all possible, that it is sunak who contemplates access to the single market or even rejoining the single market in the same way he pulled off a protocol that appears to have addressed some of the issues vis-a-vis uh, northern ireland could that happen um well it's it's quite a thought experiment uh, steve from the bellwether constituency of swindon south And you do wonder sometimes, you know, it's that old cliche about Nixon and China. Will it be a Tory prime minister who sorts out this nightmare of that Brexit deal negotiated by Johnson and Frost and gets us back into the single market? Because we're not going to get significant growth before then but I don't think it's feasible at the moment he he might be a problem solver but that is one hell of a move for him to undertake um and impossible actually and of course he himself is a Brexiteer Steve uh we've never heard really why in any great detail uh but he was before Johnson decided what to do he was a Brexiteer
0: I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Bear, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Alison Keyes, uh, I listen with interest to your analysis of the Sunak can do it for the Tories trope that's been in certain parts of the media over the last week or so. While I agree with your analysis that it's most likely Labour will still win the next election, I wonder what you think about the period going forward from there. So much of what Labour might want to do is discussed in terms of that's for the second term. Uh, Yeah, God, Alison, I think I've read that question out before, unless I'm going crazy. I think I said them, but I will repeat now. There's a podcast to do about uh, Labour and the challenges it faces in power. Um, finally, uh, Paul Cooper, uh, what is being tested in recent years appears a more blatant attempt. Uh, this is uh, international law and the respect for legal frameworks. Uh, What's being tested in recent years appears a more blatant attempt to break out of legal frameworks and test boundaries that were once seen as criminal and would lead to a day of reckoning for the individual, no matter what the shield of power provided. Why should Trump be above the war law and be defended by just one half of a political ideology who then slur the other half? in the uk the proroguing of parliament was perhaps the moment we crossed the rubicon but i'm sure more recent examples of breaking law on a certain a specific way are also good pointers yeah well uh that was written presumably uh, before trump appeared in court um in one of those extraordinary cinematic days um you see in the end these who those who test these boundaries uh, do face consequences, and um, it is interesting, for example we 've just been talking about sunak um, he addressed in the end some of the issues arising from the protocol rather than unilaterally withdrawing from it and breaking international law um, and that there, there is you know Johnson was indifferent to these things uh, although not. Holy, he liked to threaten to break international law without doing it. Uh, and Trump, well, consequences—consequences consequences are being played out. Uh, they were in that uh, uh, court in New York, um, and there will be other consequences when um, other areas of his life are uh, being explored legally. Um, so, I—I kind of think. The Rubicon has not really been crossed, actually. And when it is, or when laws are broken, we're talking with Trump also, of course, about domestic laws um, are broken, there are consequences. Now, I know with Trump, some are saying this is going to benefit him politically. I wonder. Uh, because while he is, in the short term at least, in control of the politics, in other words, he leaves the court, flies back to a rally, and tells his people in a characteristically meandering speech uh, that this shows the elite are against the people, uh, that famous juxtaposition that's dangerous, and in this case, I think, less potent than normal. But he is not in control of the legal process. There is evidence for people to read to back up what um, those who are prosecuting him are saying. Now, he has a proportion of the Republican Party who idolise him, who will buy into his every argument, but I wonder how many. Anyway, that's probably for another podcast. Now, this question time special has been going on for quite some time uh but uh you know i'm sorry if i haven't read out questions have been for somebody for the hundreds and hundreds in, in in the last few weeks um so there will be more to come because it will be the kind of normal format which will include a question time element um when we gather after easter but in the meantime have a great time whatever you're doing and let's get together very soon to make sense of it all. Thanks for listening to the Easter Question Time Special.